Welcome to Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. I'm Trevor Perry Giles, the Executive Director of the National Communication Association. The National Communication Association is the preeminent scholarly association devoted to the study and teaching of communication. Founded in 1914, NCA is a thriving group of thousands from across the nation and around the world who are committed to a collective mission to advance communication as an academic discipline. In keeping with NCA's mission to advance the discipline of communication, NCA has developed this podcast series to expand the reach of our member scholars' work and perspectives. This is Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. In this episode of Communication Matters, I'm speaking with Professor Rick Churwitz and with Catherine Baxter, Director of Partnerships at the Op-Ed Project. We're talking about how scholars can get more involved in writing op-eds and contributing to broader public discourses about important public matters. Let's start our conversation with Catherine Baxter. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Catherine works at the Op-Ed Project, which is a national organization that works with universities, think tanks, foundations, nonprofits, corporations, and community organizations across the country to scout and train for experts to write op-eds for newspapers and other outlets across the country. Can you tell us, Catherine, a little bit more about the Op-Ed Project and how it works and what it does and some of its successes? The Op-Ed Project is, I would say, first a leadership organization thinking about and addressing what we know and why we know it and where are the places where we can have leveraged impact with our ideas. Our organization was founded and to change who writes history and which voices are contributing to the most important conversations of our time. And we believe that the story we tell in the world becomes the world we live in. The story we tell in the op-ed pages, but also in Congress and in our communities, in universities, the story we tell becomes which wars we fight, which diseases we fund, and who goes to college and who goes to prison, who the police see as worthy of protection, who they see as a threat. And so we are trying to change who is telling the story in the different places where they can have more impact with those ideas. So we were founded about 10 years ago, actually a little more than 10 years ago. And it was shortly after there was a conversation that had broken out about representation in, in different fields. And it was shortly after the then president of Harvard had suggested that perhaps there were so few women in higher math and sciences because of a biological aptitude, which created a, a firestorm and these conversations in all different fields. Why are there so few women at the top of leadership? And in the op-ed pages, this conversation was happening and the debate was from different columnists and women reporters and journalists and thinkers at the New York Times and the Washington Post, but also kind of reverberating across the country. Is it sexism? Is it socialization? Why are there so few women's voices in these forums that have tremendous impact and power in which ideas are, are rising to the top? And our founder, Katie Orenstein, had been contributing to many of these publications. And she knew something from her editors, which was that women didn't pitch at the same rates as men did anecdotally. And so she thought it could be any of these other 
reasons. But if we don't submit, if we don't pitch our ideas, how would we know? And the Washington Post actually, shortly after our founding, did a study to test this. And they found that nine out of 10 pitches to the op-ed pages at the Washington Post in that tracking study were by men. And nine out of 10 publications were by men. And so Katie, our founder, thought, well, it could be all of these other problems, sexism, socialization, culture, but how would we know? Can't win a game you're not playing. And so the op-ed project was initially founded with a strategic tactical solution, which would be to get more women to pitch their ideas to op-ed pages. And that's how we began. And what we found in those early programs, in the early sessions that we ran, were that the women in those rooms had great ideas, they knew how to write, and they could quickly learn the tactics or the strategies of writing an op-ed. But actually, the larger question was around expertise and credibility. How will I be perceived Am I the expert for this idea? Will people take me seriously? Will people laugh at me? Questions that speak to a deeper concern of of leadership and entitlement. And so that actually became where we zeroed in and where our focus is around expertise and how do we understand what we know and why we know it in an unfair world and recognize that some people are automatically granted more credibility than others. And we may internalize the world that we live in. And so we first begin with a investigation of our own expertise and how to think about a different framework for how we present our ideas and ourselves in the places where we can have most leadership and and impact. And then uh, we also still know that op-eds are highly strategic and relatively short ways to get your ideas into places where they can reach far more people and can have ripple effects in society. And so then we, we also address ideas and persuasion and using op-eds as a vehicle or as a tool, but the starting point rather than the, the end goal themselves. We initially started working with women, though we have expanded. Everyone is welcome into all of our programs and everything that we do, though we do still focus on ideas that are most marginalized and working with women and people of color and people of different backgrounds and identities who aren't typically in the public conversation to overinvest in their voices in order to change the demographics of, of voice and power and leadership. Much of what you've said and the way you've described the op-ed project is will sound very familiar for the scholars and teachers who are our members at the National Communication Association because most of them are palpably interested in questions of expertise, of audience, and certainly of the importance of underrepresented voices and female voices gaining sort of that foothold that is necessary to influence broad public audiences. All of them are also scholars and teachers of communication. And I'm wondering in particular what it is that the op-ed project feels is important 
coming from scholars and teachers and scholars and experts in particular, as opposed to, say, other sectors of public discourse? All of our programs and everything that we do, we're open to anyone and everyone. And we work with a significant number of academics and scholars at different universities across the country with a specific and strategic lens of there is so much important knowledge in our academic systems that with a few tweaks, we can reach far more people with those important ideas. And it's not always in the, it's a slightly different skill set for a lot of people. And so a lot of what we're doing is trying to have people translate their ideas into a, a new forum and give people the tools and the strategies and mentorship to be able to, to do that. And a lot of what our work and programs are designed to have people take a small action and building on those small actions in the course of our curriculum to then publish just one op-ed, which might just be 500 words. But then we are really concerned with what happens next and what those small actions can, can build up to. But returning back to your question about academics specifically, I think there is the moment of time that we're in is critical in having people who have deep expertise in their fields, authentically talking about issues in public places, the world that we live in now, there's a, and as, as it's always been, but people bloviating and talking about, there are lots of people that are commenting and we are hoping that we can get more people, particularly from different backgrounds, you know, identity backgrounds, but also you know expertise in different fields that can also enter into those conversations to make it a more intelligent discourse. And universities and faculty and academics and teachers are a, a prime group of people for that. And so I think that's one of the ways it's made a lot of sense for us to, to work with those audiences. So let's say, for example, I'm a scholar at a university somewhere in communication and I study something or another, whatever I study, and I want to partner, I want to write an op-ed. I think I have something important to say. How would the process work with the op-ed project? Would I contact my university relations office? Would I contact the op-ed project directly? You know, what kinds of workshops or programs do you offer for, for me as a budding op-ed writer? You know, I'm, I'm curious about drilling down a little bit more on how the process actually works. Yeah. So there's three primary ways that we work with folks. The first is on an individual basis. So we run workshops that are open to the public. It's called Right to Change the World. We run them in a different city almost every weekend across the country. And it's our core curriculum and and program. And an individual can register to any of those sessions just on their own. Many times they will come, you know, 
on behalf of their university, but they're coming as an individual to one of those sessions in one of the cities where we run programs. And that day is really has two major themes. The first is around expertise and credibility. It's a small group, but how expertise and credibility work and work unfairly live and through exercises and engaging with your with the peers in the room, how expertise and credibility work and work unfairly and how we can find a way through that with integrity. And the second major piece of it is around persuasion and ideas. How do we have an idea that can reach far more people and have more impact? And we use an op-ed as a as the outline and everyone walks out of the, that day with an outline of an op-ed. And then after the in-person day, everyone has access for three months to our network of mentor editors. So we have about 120 journalists uh, and editors who volunteer with us and they give one-on-one feedback to our alums for up to three months and people can submit as many pieces as possible into that mentor editor network. And the idea is that the op-ed that they have an outline of during that first day is then just has to be kind of filled in with narrative, and then they can submit to the mentor editor network for it to be sharpened and get feedback, and folks will then go and and publish those ideas out out into the world after that. And so that's how an individual can can come through. And that's the, the first way that we work with folks. The second way is that we will partner with universities who want to bring that same day to their university in a small, you know, in just one day or even a day and a half or two days. And we will instead of individuals coming to the sessions that we plan and organize, we partner with an institution to bring our facilitators and curriculum to campus. Oftentimes, those programs will be hosted by centers on campus or by the provost's office or by a collection of different departments who are looking to have more ideas from their faculty in the world who are concerned with advocacy, many reasons that people might bring us to their campus. And in in those instances, it's the same kind of core program that we run and everyone has access to that network of mentor editors, but we, we come to a campus. And the third way that we partner with universities specifically is through our Public Voices Fellowship Initiative, which is our kind of flagship initiative. We're at universities across the country, as well as with foundations and community organizations running a high investment program over the course of a year to have our team work more hands-on and closely with a set of 20 fellows at each university to have the same leadership program and and curriculum around our ideas and what we know, what kind of legacy we want to leave and how we can connect our ideas to others in our field or in different fields. And then also do hands-on mentorship and support to place those ideas into op-eds and websites and online and radio in different different places using our network 
and cross fellowship connections and our team who are journalists and commentators and editors who work very closely with their fellows to get them pitched and and published. So those are the three ways that we primarily work with individuals or institutions in a short time or institutions over the course of one year or three years or five years and, and longer. Lastly, I'm just curious if you think that op-eds are particularly important at this particular political moment in in American history. I'm wondering if you all have any position on that or if it's more general, that it's just important overall to contribute our thoughts and, and opinions. Yeah, I will answer that in two ways. First, I think we think of op-eds as really a starting point. And I think in this political moment, as as both an individual, you know, speaking for myself and as, you know, our organization, that it is imperative that we have more people contributing to the conversations and issues of our time. Most people cannot pull out their cell phone and call their senator personally and reach them. But Most people can write 500 words on an issue that their senator cares about in their local paper, knowing that the senator (laughs) will likely read that, and they are reaching them then directly. And so that can also happen in other forums as well. But I think in this moment in time, we believe and, and know that we have to have a wider range of voices that are contributing to the op-ed pages, that are contributing to the Sunday talk shows, that are contributing to city council meetings, that are contributing to people running for office and speaking up in their universities or speaking up, you know, in in their community in a in a smaller way. And so Our hunch as an organization is we first have to have people understand themselves as the expert to share their ideas in any of those those forums. And that in this moment, we need to dramatically change who is standing up. And we have done that over the last 10 years. We've had 15,000 people, actually more than that. We've had, I think, 17,000 people that have come through our programs and community in in different ways and who have stood up with their voices uh, and their ideas. And we need to continue to do that in different fields, different geographies. The other piece, though, is that in this moment, I think op-eds are particularly leveraged for ways that you can can actually take an action. I think with everything that's happening in the world, it feels very difficult to see how someone could listen to you or pay attention to you. And I think what we have shown at the Op-Ed Project and what we've continued to do is that there are very concrete ways you can put your ideas into a place and reach reach new audiences. And, and so they still, though they're not the only way that someone can use their ideas, they're still highly strategic and leveraged for changing conversations beyond a traditional op-ed, you know, in the newspaper, but also in, there's so many 
digital sites and still traditional newspaper op-eds and kind of everything in between that then have ripple effects into different places where people can then have even greater impact with their ideas. Thank you, Catherine, so much for sharing with us what the op-ed project is all about. Thank you for having me. With that in mind, I'll turn now to Dr. Rick Churwitz, who will share some personal experiences with writing op-eds. First, a bit of background on Dr. Churwitz. Churwitz is the Ernest S. Sharp Centennial Professor Emeritus in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin, and the founding director of the Intellectual Entrepreneurship Consortium, a cross-disciplinary organization that has as its goal encouraging students and faculty to take risks, create knowledge, and address social problems. Dr. Churwitz has published two scholarly books and authored hundreds of articles, book chapters, and papers in the areas of rhetoric and communication studies. And Dr. Churwitz has received three awards from the National Communication Association, the Carl R. Wallace Memorial Award, the Douglas Enninger Distinguished Rhetorical Scholar Award, and the Donald H. Eckroyd Award for Outstanding Teaching. Rick Churwitz has also written more than 250 op-eds and letters to the editor over the past 20 years, and the op-eds have been published throughout the country, including in such large market outlets as the Houston Chronicle, USA Today, and the New York Times. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Dr. Churwitz about how communication and rhetorical scholars can get involved in op-ed writing. Thanks, Rick, for joining us. It's uh, great to talk to you. Good morning. Before we get into the strategies for how we get op-eds published, tell me a little bit about how you got started writing op-eds, and was there anyone who motivated you or was particularly helpful for you in the beginning of the process of writing and placing op-eds in newspapers? Indeed, there was somebody who was particularly helpful, and to give you context for that, In 1995, I became one of the deans in the university's graduate school, and one of the first things that I observed, you've got to remember this is a time when higher education and graduate education are really under assault from the public, from many uh, parents of students, and graduate education in particular is being attacked. And so one of the first things I realized when I went to the graduate school is that administrators and faculty really need to be more proactive rather than reactive. We need to help the public really begin to see the enormous value of education and research and the significant contributions that are made by our graduate students who were often being portrayed as simply a drain on the resources of the university. So as a result of that, one of the first things I did in the graduate school was to hire a person by the name of Stephanie Sanford, who was a graduate student in my own program of rhetoric at the university. And Stephanie was someone who had extensive experience in politics and operating in the public sphere. And when she came to the graduate school, the first thing she proposed to me is that I write op-eds. And in fact, She set up a meeting with me and the editor at that time of the local newspaper, the Austin American Statesman, Rich Oppel. And as a result of that meeting, we began to write a series of op-eds telling the story about the enormous value of graduate students. So when I look back at that period of time, 1995, what in essence happened was that Stephanie showed me that academics can not only contribute to a scholarly audience, but 
they can make an adaptation and should do a public audience as well. And in another way of saying that is she really gave me license to be able to get, begin writing op-eds and the rest is history. Was that also the basis or the time of the formation of that intellectual entrepreneurship consortium? It was exactly at the same time because one of the goals of the intellectual entrepreneurship program was to show graduate students through our various classes that regardless of their discipline, they have enormous value and they can make contributions, not just to the academy, but they can make contributions to society in a number of different ways. And so it's more than a coincidence that a lot of these op-eds that we wrote were really on behalf of the IE program. So, For those of our listeners who don't have the benefit of having an IEC program near them or or the sorts of resources that you had in Texas, what do you what do you think that they can do to become more actively engaged with public audiences, either through op eds or other mechanisms? Uh, You know, what are the ways that they can engage with the broader public? That's a good question. And interestingly, it was the subject of an article that I recently published in Liberal Education, which, as you know, is the flagship journal of the Association of American Colleges and Universities. And the point I tried to make in that article is that academics, including me, have an obligation to use our knowledge to not only create social good and educate the public, but there are lots of ways that we can do that, many of which uh, were incidentally core values of IE. And I suggested a number of these. I suggested that scholars can and do organize and participate in social movements. That's one way to become engaged. They can run for office or work for political candidates locally at the state level and nationally. They can also roll up their sleeves and dig into solving community problems that all of our academic disciplines and especially communication have a kind of knowledge that is useful in solving whatever the problems are with our community. And what I realized in that article and writing that article was all of those ways of becoming engaged, which are very valuable and very useful, simply weren't my calling card. I felt my way to become engaged or the primary way to become engaged is to do what I do best as an academic, which is to think, to write and to reflect. And so writing op-eds and writing letters became my way of becoming an engaged scholar. And clearly that is a way that academics in our field can become engaged. And obviously it has become a way of doing so in, in the last five to 10 years. So one of the things you mentioned in just recently was that communication scholars in particular have something to offer to the broader public realm. And I'm wondering, you know, what value you see in communication scholars op-ed, specifically in the current political climate. Uh, You know, what is it that we uniquely have to say to the broader public? Well, Trevor, there are a couple ways of answering that question. And let me start with, as a scholar, a more historical or theoretical one. Unlike a lot of other disciplines in the academy, communication going back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, as you know, as a rhetorician, have always served as a link between theory, practice, and production. So we are, in essence, in the language of IE, we are citizen scholars and therefore are poised to make some kind of a contribution. 
Second, and to answer your question more specifically, many of the principles and theories of communication we're beginning to see are extremely relevant to and help us explain what's transpiring in our current political environment. Whether you look at concepts like cognitive dissonance, stasis theory and rhetoric, deliberation, audience identification, the need to find common ground, all of those become a way for us to really understand the importance of communication to understanding what's going on in our in our political world today. So given all of that, what do you think your most successful op-ed to date has been uh, and why? Why do you chalk that one up to success? Well, I, I don't know that I can really answer that question as I've shared with you and on social media my op-eds get a lot of responses, not only in social media, but in email and letters. And many of them are positive, I would say most, but I get a lot of hate mail too. And so if, so there's no real metric for me to be able to say which one or ones have been most effective. But if I had to guess, I would say some of the op-eds that I wrote in a lot of national outlets addressing anti-Semitism and its rise in the age of Trump and a lot of other autocrats abroad has probably been one of the most effective. And I say effective because it gave me an opportunity to speak directly to people who might support Trump and say, I am not, I'm being a scholar, and I am not trying to argue that Trump is the direct cause of these things, but that one of the things I want them to be able to see all people to be able to see is that his rhetoric really emboldens a lot of the xenophobic, racist, and anti-Semitic people to come out of the woodwork. So while they may not be to blame for that, we all have to be cognizant of that if we ever want to address what is a shared concern by all members of or most members of this society, which is that we cannot allow the spread of anti-Semitism and racism to continue. So I would say that th those pieces on anti-Semitism may have been among the most effective. You know, yeah, I, I, I imagine that's true. I'm curious, though, about the, the notion of getting hate mail and hate responses, because I'm wondering if you might think about the proportion is, you know, my worry is that for a lot of folks that hate mail is so frightening and so concerning. And I'm wondering, do you get a lot of positive feedback as well? I mean, do people write and say, thanks for saying that? Yes, absolutely. And I get a ton of it from people I do. And the vast majority is positive from people I don't know. And even some people I have not met going seen since back in high school and they read these op-eds and they go out of their way to find me and write and, and thank me for doing that. And so, you know, my advice to other people, and I, you know, I can only do what I can do is you can't be scared of hate mail, hateful mail that, that you're going to receive. In fact, this is an argument I've had with my wife who very much worries that my being out there in the public is going to prompt a lot of negative things. And you know, I can't go there. All I can do is say, I feel an obligation to do this. Things have got to change. And as a scholar, these are things I can do. But to answer your question, no, the vast majority of the responses I get are, are positive. It's that I think most people tend to remember the hate mail they get, uh, even though it is uh, significantly less in number. 
Sure. I think that's a characteristic of our current climate, right? The hate gobbles up so much oxygen and, and attracts so much attention. From all of this experience, I'm wondering if you have any bits of advice or, you know, what's the first thing somebody should do if they get interested in wanting to be more of a citizen scholar or an activist academic? What should they do? What's the first thing they should start thinking about? The first thing they should do is not do what they usually do as academics, which is to overthink it and wait too long. They should write it immediately. As I said, don't ponder it for too long. And really, the, the two cliches that come to mind for me in recommending that they just get out there, do it, send it, regardless of whether or not it's rejected is, remember the cliche, he who or she who hesitates is lost. And remember, if at first you don't succeed, try trying again. I mean, my own experience has been I have received an inordinate number of rejections. And by rejections, I don't mean the newspaper responding and saying they won't do it. One of the things I've learned is that unlike academic writing, you often don't hear from the editors and the papers that you submit things to. This is a situation where more often than not, they're not going to respond unless they decide to publish something. So my first bit of advice was would be don't overthink it, just get out there and do it. And the other advice that I would give on that, which I was thinking about as a response to one of your other questions, is there are a lot of resources that are available to you. For example, many college campuses now have a point person in their communications office or office for public affairs, someone who is there to help faculty not only write and give feedback to their op-eds, but actually to pitch those op-eds to newspapers around the country. And the other thing is we now have, I think you mentioned this earlier, we have a project that was not available to me when I began writing op-eds in, in, the, in the 1990s. It's called the Op-Ed Project, and there's a, a web page for that, which not only gives advice, but lists a lot of the contacts for newspapers around the country. The Op-Ed Project, too, is, as we know from our conversation with Catherine, committed to elevating underrepresented groups and minority voices, if you will, those who have typically not been engaged publicly. And I think that's an admirable dimension to their mission and the work that they do. I'm wondering more specifically about stylistic differences. You know, academics are used to writing in a particular way, and we write research papers and academic articles and books. But is there a particular set of advice or key stylistic differences that you might emphasize in the writing of an op-ed? Yeah, there, there are a number. The most important to me are the necessity for clarity and brevity, using short sentence structure, which is what I learned the hard way when I first started writing op-eds. The other thing is to be very concrete, to offer examples that will be relevant to and understood by to whoever the public audience is that you are writing, to be more conversational, including using first person, which we discourage in the academic environment. The other thing, and it's more than just a stylistic issue, is to try to remember to always write in a format that is problem-solution-oriented, where you're explaining to whoever the audience is for whatever newspaper what the pressing problem is and what solution you have to offer, including how your academic knowledge is directly relevant to solving that problem. 
In addition, you need to write in a way that targets your audience. For example, I've written a lot of op-eds which have gone to very regional newspapers, whether it's recently in Tennessee because of Lamar Alexander or Ohio newspapers because of statements made by Jim Jordan. And it's perfectly appropriate to define who your audience is and write very specifically to them. That's that's very good advice. I appreciate that. I think uh, all of this advice is is going to be very useful for those of us who are interested in op-ed writing and producing the op-eds. By the way, I should note that a lot of Rick's op-eds are included in on the NCA website as a function of our own little op-ed project, the Current Commentary Program, which is part of Communication Currents and invites scholars to engage in commentary on current topics of import and relevance to the communication discipline. So, Rick, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives, for sharing your op-eds in current commentary, and for talking to all of us today about the op-ed writing process and intellectual entrepreneurship. If I could, Trevor, let me make one other suggestion. You know, for faculty who are interested in this, there are other ways they can do this. And one way to do it is for them to write in their own academic journals, as many of us have, about the importance of this and why rhetoric and communication need to be involved more in the public sphere and also in our teaching. You know, it's important for us as teachers of graduate students to make clear to our graduate students that precisely because of their academic knowledge, they have an obligation and should feel free to make contributions to newspapers and other media outlets. That's great. That's a great way to wrap it up. So, Thank you again for all of these insights. I'm sure they'll be incredibly valuable to the listeners of Communication Matters. Thank you. Thank you, Rick and Catherine, for joining us today. We hope that this episode has shed some light on the op-ed writing process. And as always, thank you for listening to this episode of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. In NCA news, the NCA Doctoral Honors Seminar will be held from June 7th to June 10th at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. The Doctoral Honors Seminar brings together promising doctoral students and distinguished faculty members from across the discipline and around the nation to discuss current topics in communication. This year's seminar theme is Engaging the Responsibilities of Communication, Research, Teaching, and Communities. Our hosts at Colorado State have also announced who the faculty leaders will be for 2020. They are in rhetoric, Dr. Jose David Cisneros from the University of Illinois, Thomas R. Dunn from Colorado State, and Raka Shome from Villanova. In communication theory, it's Ambar Basu from the University of South Florida, Graham Bodie from the University of Mississippi, and Colorado State's Elizabeth Williams. And in media studies, it's Dr. Shanti Kumar from the University of Texas, Dr. Nick Marks from Colorado State University, and Dr. Lori Olette from the University of Minnesota. Applications are due March 6th. That's March 6th, 2020. Visit natcom.org NCADHS for more information. 
including a full listing of the faculty seminar leaders and information about how to apply for this year's NCA Doctoral Honor Seminar at Colorado State University. Listeners, we hope you tune in next week for a bonus episode about the Iowa caucuses. I'll be speaking with researchers from the Campaigns and Elections Field Research Project, an interdisciplinary project that brought students and faculty members from several universities to the Iowa caucuses. Professors Joshua Skako, Ashley Muddeman, and Cynthia Peacock will be discussing their experiences at the caucuses and the research project that their students conducted while they were in Iowa. So stay tuned for a bonus episode next week of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Be sure to engage with us on social media by liking us on Facebook, following NCA on Twitter and Instagram, and watching us on YouTube. And before you go, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to listen in as we discuss emerging scholarship, established theory, and new applications, all exploring just how much communication matters in our classrooms, in our communities, and in our world. See you next time. Communication Matters is hosted by NCA Executive Director Trevor Perry Giles and is recorded in our national office in downtown Washington, D.C. The podcast is recorded and produced by Assistant Director for Digital Strategies, Chelsea Bowes, with writing support from Director of External Affairs and Publications, Wendy Fernando, and Content Development Specialist, Grace Hebert. Thank you for listening.